Japan by River Cruise is made possible thanks to those who donate to the show at japanbyrivercruise.com and due to the generosity of our corporate sponsors. This episode of Japan by River Cruise is brought to you by the Kimbini Boys. You've heard the news. A global health pandemic resurgent in Thailand. Supply chain problems in East Asia cause international food shortages. Political stability and global economics hanging in the balance. And at the center of it all, Bammy Chicky. Make no mistake, this will be the year that America's only Kumbini-based podcast will win the Pulitzer Prize for audio reporting. And even if they don't, we're sure they can Photoshop themselves holding one. The Kumbini Boys, your source for weekly hard-hitting podcast journalism about cream-filled pastries and essentially public washlets. Plus, a Twitter account that, much like a Kumbini in the Inaka, has hours of operation that vastly exceed demand. The Convini Boys, because Ollie and I aren't the only ones who, despite all odds, are still making a show. Hello, Brian, and welcome back to Japan by River Cruise. I'm Bobby Judo. Hello, it's us again. I'm Oli Horn. And joining us this week is Motoko Rich, New York Times Tokyo Bureau Chief, currently covering the Liberal Democratic Party Cruise, which carries favors from Tokyo to the countryside and votes from the countryside to Tokyo in a round-trip journey that lasts forever. Motoko, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. On this week's show, Prime Minister Kishida keeps making broad gestures to tell the whole country that he's in charge. But what does him being in charge actually mean? I mean, I tell my kids I'm in charge all the time, but they still keep turning off the hot water while I'm in the shower. I think it's hilarious. Anyway, we'll ask Motoko to tell us about the new Kishida administration's concrete policies and plans. And then we'll talk about something else for the last 29 minutes. Plus, Ali's got your weekly river cruise recommendation. Ali? Yeah, I was just thinking that used to be our game. It's funny how parenthood changes you. <laughs> uh, yes, Bobby, uh, this week's recommendation is the first cruise in Tokyo who has managed to entirely eliminate fare evasion for the season. How? They changed their price to free. Plus, local shopping mall Canal City has launched an authentic American Christmas cruise, which is pretty heavy on the shopping for presents and entirely divorced from any religious meaning. So, yeah, spot on. More on that later, but first, Soap Talk. Uh, Brian couldn't be here today because he's still mad at us. Uh, we forgot to tell him that we were taking a week off, and he sat in our virtual recording studio by himself for an hour. Uh, yes, but thankfully I did leave it recording. So we do have that hour-long recording, and we're going to be releasing that as a bonus extra. Look forward to that. Motoko, thank you for joining us. Uh, we first asked you on the show at what was probably the worst possible time that we could have asked you. It was just as the Tokyo Olympics were kicking off. Uh, how was your uh, Tokyo Olympic covering experience? I mean, it was it was definitely super busy. Uh, and I have been recently just was looking back to our coverage and realized, you know, it goes almost all the way back to February because that is when the president of the Olympic Committee resigned after the comments where he said that women who talk in meetings talk too much. And so that's yeah. when kind of the news cycle for the Olympics started. And it just didn't cease since then. There was one thing after another. Um but covering the Olympics itself was just insane. So was that really the first Olympic story that managed to cut through in the US? 
No, the first Olympic story that cut through was when it was postponed, of course. And then the mm. sort of question oh, of, of whether yeah, it was, well, yeah. and then the question, you know, will it, won't it, will it, won't it? And that sort of was right up to the very end, obviously. And, you know, how can they possibly do this under COVID constrictions? And when they first released the so-called playbook saying what you could or could not do, um, all the reaction to that. So there were definitely stories that cut through before that, but that was a big one. Um, and it happened actually on the same night that they released a big playbook. So I was writing stories about, mm. you know, here are the rules. If you want to come to the Olympics, you're going to have to test all the time and you're going to have to do this and you can't go here and you can't go there. And then all of a sudden we saw this Asahi News um, blip about these comments. And so then we rushed something out and then it kind mm. of blew up into a big story. I mean, as you probably have seen before, a lot of times when something's covered by foreign media, that's when the local media really goes nuts. Right. It's sort of this very right. meta cycle in which there's a small little story in Japanese media and then we we're like, whoa, this big thing happened. And then all of the next day we were sort of laughing about this because we were seeing our story screenshotted all over various morning mm. shows the new york times the washington post reuters are covering this uh these comments and then the apology and then his finally his stepping down and then the question of would who would replace him he tried to put his own crony another 80 or 80 something year old in but then it went to seiko hashimoto so that was like a big flurry of stories right and then after that mm. it was the kind of will they won't they the states of emergency the covid situation was starting to get out of hand people were really nervous so it was really a, like a very intense run-up Honestly, um, I've covered only one other Olympics before, but many of my colleagues have been to dozens of Olympics and they mm. would say there's always something beforehand, like something just breaks through and becomes kind of a small little scandal or there's a problem or there's a mess or there's something's not ready or, you know, any number of things happen right before the Olympics start. Um, and it's always this thing that you're preparing for that doesn't happen. So, of course, we were all like eyes yeah. focused on a COVID outbreak and that didn't yeah. really happen. And so instead, I mean, obviously it was sort of coincident with a pretty um, significant rise in cases mm. in Tokyo and around Japan due to the outbreak of the Delta variant. But there yes. was not a big outbreak in the Olympic bubble. Yeah. I think that'd be an interesting experiment is to kind of like create a, a portfolio of all the negative press that leads up to the Olympics so that when countries are considering hosting them and someone goes, oh, it'll be a great opportunity to have the spotlight on our nation. You can be like, yes, and this is what comes with it. This is what the spotlight looks like. <laughs> are you sure you want that spotlight? Yes, yeah. exactly. I'm interested that you're so aware of the power of foreign media in Japan's domestic media, particularly for a recognizable brand like New York Times. Are you aware as you're writing this piece, this is going to, you know, this is going to go full circle and, no, and be picked up again? No. Or does it take you by surprise? It doesn't take me by surprise. Like, I expect it in as much as when it happens, it's like, all right, of course. Mm. But when I'm writing it, I'm not thinking about that you know, when it was happening, it was it was kind of a scramble because we were trying to get you yeah. know, meet a deadline and rushing it out and trying to talk to people. And so that's often how breaking news is you're, you're trying yeah. to get the story done and write it in a way that's clear and get all, you know, hit all the notes that mm -hmm. you need to know, note and um, hit rather and, um, you know, going through the editing process. So you're not really thinking about that. But yeah. I've been a reporter for a long time. And one of the things that happens in Japan that never happens in the United States is when I show up somewhere, often in a mm. rural 
community, the local media shows up and wants to interview me to ask me why I'm there. And I always sort of am puzzled by that because I say, I'm not the news. I'm here to cover the news that's happening in your town, not for you mm. to cover me. Like, I'm irrelevant to <laughs> Point this Point your picture. cameras the other way, please. <laughs> exactly. And so I find that sort of puzzling. But yes, I mean, we all know that Japan is concerned about Gaiatsu. They don't always respond to it. But I think in this particular mm. case, because of the Olympics, the spotlight was intensified, right? It wasn't mm. just that mm. we were covering an incident where a leader, a former prime minister, had made a comment as a leader of a particular domestic organization who's the leader of the Tokyo Olympic Committee. Mm. So it was all outward facing. Right. So I think that in particular exacerbated the sort of mm. interest in the foreign media coverage. Do you think yeah. that Japan ever gets taken by surprise in terms of the things that the Western media considers a big deal? Yes. So I, I often get asked that, like, why are you, why is the New York Times interested in this or that? Um, well, you know, one example was uh, when the emperor abdicated. Um, what was that? 2019, I think. I'm kind of losing track mm -hmm. of time. But uh, I did a big series kind of looking back at the history, going back to um, Akito hearing his own father um, surrender on the radio all mm -hmm. the way up to the present day. And when we got to the present day, my last piece was about Kei Komuro. Um, and a lot of people asked me, why are you interested in Mako and Kei Komuro? I mean, they understood why we were interested in the abdication and Akihito becoming the emperor, but they didn't understand why we were so interested in Kei Komuro and Mako, Princess Mako. Um, and we were trying to explain, we're interested in all royals. Have you seen how we cover Meghan and Harry? Like that yeah, is yeah. really, really interesting to readers all over the world. Um, mm. So that's one example I remember. But almost any time I go to a rural area, they're kind of like, what? Why is the New York Times interested in this? And I'm like, this is the best stuff. Like, we really want to cover what's really happening, not just the sort of, obviously, it's incredibly important to cover who's being elected the prime minister and the Olympics mm. and the big news. But we also want to get out into the field and really learn what's going on outside of the kind of normal mainstream stuff that would, would ordinarily be covered. I respect that opinion, and I totally hope it's okay that we've planned an entire episode to talk to you about exactly just what you said is is not as important as the local stuff. <laughs> <laughs> this is all going to be government and politics. Uh, I mean, we okay. could talk. I'm I'm moving to Karat, so I could talk about that in the main section. <laughs> that sounds good. You'll have to tell us what it's like. Oh, don't worry. Here. Okay. Um, Listen for the next episode. And how expensive. Yeah. yeah, and how expensive it is to move there and how he needs our money. <laughs> uh, talking of people giving us money, uh, someone bought us a coffee, an anonymous coffee. Uh, we like it when that happens. It adds an air of mystery. Hey, if you came up to us in the street with a balaclava on and just handed us a coffee, we would drink it. Uh, so um, if, you, if you like the show, but you don't want to associate yourself with the show, then that feature is available <laughs> on buymeacoffee.com forward slash Japan by River Cruise. Uh, you, can, uh, you can donate anonymously. Thank you very much to everyone that continues to support the show, particularly when we had to take an absence for reasons that, goodness me, if you're us, make complete sense. Uh, and we're grateful for your patience as we, uh, as, as we get back on the wagon. Shall we jump into Bobby Judo? The news. Bobby Judo, what is in the news this week? Well, the New York Times has been doing a lot of pieces on Kishida and his government, and we're very lucky to have the Tokyo Bureau Chief here with us today. Motoko, Kishida has been in office for about a month and a half now. Um, what has he been doing with that time? 
Well, the first thing he had to do was go out and win a general election, which he did. Mm. And um, I think he did better than we all expected. I mean, I think a lot of people were expecting that with the LDP having suffered through a sort of round of bruising approval rating declines Mm -hmm. during the period when Suko was prime minister and throughout the period of the Olympics and sort of grumblings over the handling of the coronavirus and kind of economic downturn, that they would not do so well in these elections. And they took a hammering Mm -hmm. in a local election in Yokohama. So there were all these predictions about how many seats they were going to lose. And they didn't lose as many seats as they were expected to. That being said, I've also written about the fact that the LDP has won all but, you know, every election except for one or two, one, right, in the last, uh, since mm-hmm. 1955. And then they also once had to sort of form a coalition government that they didn't want to. But other than that, um, they have been in power for most of the post-war period. And it's usually a foregone conclusion that they're going to win. Mm-hmm. So the real thing that was kind of the big news was the leadership election in the LDP for who would be the leader of the party and therefore de facto prime minister. So Kishida mm-hmm. became prime minister when he was elected leader of the party. He didn't have to go through the general election to know that he was going to have that job. Um, but yes, for the first half of his you know brief stint in politics, he tried to win an election. Yeah, and, and we discussed on the show when there was that leadership contest that of the the four candidates he was kind of seen as the the safe bet the kind of status quo continuing the legacy not upsetting the apple cart but i do think that some people were surprised about uh about how the cdp continued to lose seats about how there was this kind of there was an effort uh to uh by up by other opposition parties to field just one candidate in most constituencies to not split the vote like there was an effort to try and slow down the ldp's momentum and i think what's interesting is like that effort failed like like isn't the point there's supposed to be kind of a slow decline of the kind of fringe support Mm -hmm. of the ldp as as it just becomes a machine of changing the next you know, cookie cutter identical leader. Quite aside from what the LDP is doing right, which we will talk about, it, it, what what has the CDP done wrong in order to, to to sustain losses like this again? There are some things that they've done wrong, right? They're not particularly inspiring. They don't offer a platform that's all that different from the LDP. But I think it's sort of a mirror image of what the LDP is so shrewd about doing, which is one, they always steal the thunder of whatever the sort of main platform of the leadership of the uh, main opposition party, the LDP seems to constantly adopt their agenda and turn it into their own. So even Kishida talking during his leadership campaign about this so-called new capitalism, which he sort of backpedaled from a bit was a form of that, right? By saying that, you know, he talked about inequality and the importance of supporting parents. And that's all kind of classic, uh, you know, going back to the DPJ um, and then the CDP, that's sort of their agenda. That's supposed to be what differentiates. And it certainly is sort of in other countries, what often differentiates the left, including the United States and in Europe. So to have the Mm -hmm. sort of nominally right wing party talking about those issues, they're, they're sort of taking away the thunder of the opposition party. So that's one thing that they're very good at doing and have done consistently. I mean, one might argue that Abenomics was a form of that, right? Like in what other country is it considered kind of a conservative um, uh, po- economic policy to have fiscal spending like that front and right. center? I mean, that is not typically what fiscal conservatives argue for. So there's that component. Mm-hmm. Then the other component, which I wrote about as well um, uh, with Makiko Inoue, is that we went... Um, 
out to Totori Prefecture, which is one of the, it is the least populated prefecture, and they have two um, electoral districts there, and one of them um, is the least populated electoral district, but has the highest representation. So there, there are a lot of, there are very few people represented by one member of the diet, whereas if you mm. come to the most sort of densely populated um, district in Tokyo, more than twice as many people are represented by one legislator. So that's a very effective way for the local, the, the member of the diet who represents the people of Totori has a much closer relationship with them. He's, you know, there are fewer people that he has to woo. And then also mm. there's a very concrete evidence of the impact that he has in the diet for them. They get a lot of money. Um, you know, you go out there and they're constantly constructing the roads. We saw a brand new library. We saw a brand, mm. you know, newly renovated school for, you know, something like 150 kids. Um, the population of the town has been drastically shrinking. Something like 40% of the people are over the age of 65. And yet they had a huge children's section in this brand new, beautiful library. Um, yeah. So I think for the voters, they see this and they think there's a benefit. Why would I vote for any other candidate? This is our guy. Yeah. Derek Westman always mm. kind of sings this song when he's on the show. The LDP really has a local presence and they're seen to yes. be pressing the flesh and doing things yeah. in the local community to help. Yeah. Um, but in terms of this last general election, in that article that you mentioned, um, you, you wrote about how the LDP was successful in the general election despite being on snooze and despite mm. choosing Kishida as a party right. leader. Right. No. So that was really surprising, right? That when we, the leadership election, there were some interesting alternatives. One who was like the far right, Sanae Takaichi, but then we also had Kono-san, who, if you believed the polls, and we all know how polls aren't necessarily 100% reliable, right? Mm. People are being asked. Well, who all of the polls for. about Kono were conducted via his Twitter account, so. Oh, well, uh, which shows him to be incredibly popular in the public, right? Like, you know, he his Twitter following um, is more than all of the other candidates combined. And he is very popular on that. So, you know, whether or not we believe that represents anything, but we've seen in other countries for better or for worse, Twitter following Mm. does tend to translate in some level. Are you talking about any countries in particular? Oh, let's not name names here. (laughs) But in in in, you know, if it were simply a popularity contest and we can all argue about whether that's the right way to choose our leaders. But if it were simply a popularity contest, Kono was definitely the guy, right? And they didn't choose him. They went with Kishida-san, who doesn't really have a lot of public adoration. And I think it was for internal political reasons. He had, you know, pressed the right um, flesh all along. And he had, um, you know, he wasn't going to sort of make big waves. And he uh, was believed to be, you know, a so-called puppet and would follow orders from people at the top. Um, the outcome of the election, some people are saying, and I think it's really hard to tell, like everybody and their brother and sister are giving their reading of the tea leaves and I could offer mine, but I think I'm not an expert. You know, I sort of reflect what, what's going on out there. But there is some talk about the fact that Amani lost his, he actually lost um, his seat, um, has given Kishida a little bit more power to flex his own views because now he's not sort of in the throes or sort of, absolutely owing to the far right of the party. Mm. And so some people have said that, for example, his choosing Hayashi-san to be the foreign minister shows that he's flexing a little bit of his Mm. newfound uh, credibility or power in the party. But it's yet to see. I mean, these are all kind of minute differences in in a way. Right, exactly. These, yeah, these are changes that are happening at the margins, aren't they? I I suspected that if Konotaro did become the leader, uh, then that might signal a new era of 
longevity in leadership that knowing how ambitious he is and knowing how he'd really enjoy uh you know all the foreign travel and all of the you know like th th there's something about him which is like if he was going to become leader he'd want to cling on to it forever of course my suspicion and i'm uh normally wrong about these things so it's that's why it's quite fun to um <laughs> to record <laughs> record my opinions on this show is like kishida being chosen may indicate that we're back to uh this i don't know like revolving prime ministers right. that Japan a lot of people have talked about have. that well we've already had one go in a year right so mm. uh, yeah it, 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 exactly so so now it's become a pattern and, and i and i wonder whether like is 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 there just something which like the system doesn't allow for someone charismatic i mean let's just mention the t word uh or, or, or some or a candidate like boris johnson in the uk who like they completely polarize their party but they're good enough at politics that even those that resent them go well at least you're good for the party right now the ldp seems to to, to have enough support in the general populace that any middling candidate that more or less fits the cookie cutter will do for a year until such time as the party needs to save face by ousting them. Well, is that about I, right? I don't know if it's about right. I would also say another way of framing it is that the, there's a lot of apathy, right? Voter turnout is relatively low. So they can sort of, that's another reason why the mm. LDP stays in power. And there's always this narrative that when you talk to voters, they say, well, we gave the opposition a chance and they messed it up. And so we can't trust them again. And, mm. and I think the other thing is that it, a lot of the changes that we have seen around the world and the sort of growth of populism and sort of virulent mm. conservative views often has to do with kind of deep discontent with some pretty basic things about day-to-day -day lives. And I think in Japan, there isn't quite that level yet. I mean, even just thinking about when I went out to Totori and some comments that came back on the story from Western readers was, hey, I mean, if... Um, apathy and letting the same party rule for this long get you a new library and a new school and some paved roads that's pretty great <laughs> compared yeah. to what you get for that in other countries and so there isn't a lot of that kind crumbling of crumbling infrastructure and empty coffers you know the trains still run on time you know they're thinking about recycling the diapers they're not just leaving back garbage on the streets and so i think there is that sense of kind of um, apathy and just willing to kind of let things ride, the shogunai attitude, right? Because things sort of basically still kind of work. So why should we rock the boat? You know, we don't really know what we're going to get yeah. if we make big changes. Two, two quick things. One, uh, if anybody would like to understand that super mysterious diaper reference, listen to this week's extras. They're very, very fascinating. <laughs> two... <laughs> Bobby, you, you, you missed a trick by, by not explaining that and just letting Motoko just fling that in as a, as a person. Yeah, our, one you know, of our I rules on like the show is we diapers. don't let our guests fling around diapers. Uh, and so second, one thing that we should absolutely deal with in this episode is um, what does Kishida want to do? What are his policies? What will he do for Japan? Well, that's a great question because they're all very vague, right? I mean, I think he's talked a lot in his campaign and since then about trying to get COVID under control. And I think that's where people are focused and more on the eco economy. If I watch the morning shows, they're sort of obsessively, I mean, I, I make that sound a little pejorative. That's not fair. Obviously, it's very, very important. The, the, the most recent GDP figures show that the economy was contracting. There is some optimism on the outlook, but there's, you know, 
a lot of concerns all around and people are hurting. And, you know, certainly if mm. you work in the restaurant industry or the tourism industry, you have been flattened by the pandemic. And that's not unique to Japan, of course, but right. people who live in Japan are concerned about what's happening in Japan. And so they need some help. And so people are concentrating on the stimulus. You know, there's a lot of questions about the way in which they're implementing it, that they that there doesn't seem to have been kind of technical forethought. So I've seen on many morning shows repeatedly the question about why is it for the children's benefit that a family that's making only 900 thousand yen um, doesn't get any benefit but the family if the two you know both members are working but they make slightly less than nine hundred thousand yen they do get the benefit so there's a lot of questions about mm -hmm. the implementation of how this stimulus money is going to be dispersed and what effect it'll have on the economy um, he you know he did talk about trying to improve inequality but i think he's really focused on covid right now and there's a lot mm -hmm. of discussion about the border openings but again in a sort of that very typical bureaucratic japanese way they said they were going to reduce the quarantine for business travelers from 10 or 14 to 10 to 3 days but the mm. graphic, uh, you know, that they released that's trending on Twitter, nobody understands who they should apply to, what agency is handling this, what kind of documentation they need, how they get permission. So I think there's a lot of confusion over the details right now. So he's mm. not really making any big promises that I have seen. Perhaps I've missed them. I have a suggestion as to what his policies might be. I've noticed because of the COP26 conference, which happened uh, in Glasgow, uh, which for listeners which aren't familiar, uh, it was a big conference where we got all the millionaires around the world to gather and decide whether to save the planet. And this year they decided no. I wonder whether there's a little bit of a pullback on Suga's promises to reduce Japan's reliance on coal. Like I, I've noticed that Kishida hasn't made any big broad statements about climate change and Japan's reliance on fossil fuels. Whereas if he were to be thinking that, now would be the time that he says right. it. Right. I mean, didn't they get once again the Fossil of the Day Award at COP26, which is given out by an activist group for being overly reliant on fossil fuels? I mean, mm. I think Japan is committed to reducing the building of new coal plant, coal-fired plants in Japan, and they're still discussing about whether they're going to finance it abroad. I mean, that's a big, big question for Japan, not just what they're doing in Japan, but what they're financing throughout Southeast Asia in their kind of hurry to compete with China, infrastructure spending and financing is really important to them. And one of the things they've done is finance coal-fired plants. Do you think that they could have a more progressive stance if they were more committed to uh, things like gender representation or diversity in their leadership? So you saying if it wasn't a bunch of old fossils, they might start thinking about alternatives to old fossils? Well, I'm trying not to be ageist. I don't want to just blame this all on old people, but... Uh, Everybody, okay. the Twitter exploded over the pictures of um, right, uh, which Kishida's are cabinet. you know the same as they've ever been. I mean, there's nothing new about that. Um, I think it. I wouldn't want to say you know in a partisan way that just having more you know better gender representation or diversity in any group necessarily means that group will suddenly lean progressive. That being yeah. said, it's sort of inescapable or inevitable that if you change the composition of a group that has been the same forever and introduce diverse people, they're likely to have diverse ideas and different ways of seeing yeah. problems and different ways of seeing solutions. And one might argue because Japan is still so entrenched and sexist with regard to how domestic life is structured and who's in charge of kids, um, you know, one could argue that women are thinking about the future in a very 
you know, deeply profound way that maybe men aren't because mm. they're much more in charge of the kids. So they know they sort of think every day about the future because they're thinking about children mm. and those children having a future on a planet that isn't um, exploding, you know, imploding. Yeah, I did speak to some um some Japanese people recently about uh, the the cabinet and the lack of gender representation in the cabinet. And what some of the women that I was talking to said was one of the big problems is that whenever there's a woman to vote for, she's not a good candidate. It's that a lot of the female candidates tend to be the more conservative candidates. Yes, yes. Well, I wrote a profile of Sanae Takaichi because she was one of the two women who was standing for the leadership election. And, um, you know, just by if you looked at the numbers, she was the one who was likely to have more votes than um, Seiko Noda-san. Um, so she was the one we focused on. But a lot of people said that this often happens, that women, in order for women to break through and actually get a leadership position, they tend to have to be extreme in some way. And often that tends to be extreme to the right. I mean, Margaret Thatcher is a good example, and and mm. uh, Takeichi-san said that Margaret Thatcher was her role model or her idol, right? So this idea that to be the first to break through, you have to be extreme in a certain way, and you can only break through in one way. You're already going to be the first, you know, this extraordinary, for Japan to have their first woman prime minister is such a big deal that to also break with the dominant party would be um, considered an issue. That being said, the party is a pretty broad church. I mean, one of going yeah. back to what I said at uh, the point about why they consistently win is they're always borrowing things from other parties and broadening their platform. Um, you know, you would think that there was more room for them to have support a woman who wasn't as far right as could possibly be. Yeah, you can only have so many kind of revolutionary breakthroughs at one time. It's, that's, it's that's hard what enough I'm to told. get through as yeah. It's hard enough to get through as a woman. It's even harder to do it as uh, a decent woman. Or left wing, yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> left wing, which would be a change for Japan as well. Yeah. But if Japan were to have a female leader in our lifetimes, which can you believe that's something which is still up for debate, still up for grabs, it might not happen. It is going to be an LDP candidate. Chances are. Chances are. I mean, a lot would have to change, right? Well, it's only questionable uh, whether or not we'll see a female prime minister in our lifetimes, because at this point, our lifetime is only like the next 10 years. Hey, thanks very much for listening to this episode 107 of Japan by River Cruise. And thank you to our guest this week, Motoko Rich. Motoko, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for having me. That was fun. And if anybody's interested in um, subscribing to the New York Times, we always welcome new international subscribers. We recently hit one million around the world, so you can be the next one. Um, and I just wrote a story, as um, you can hear in the extras, about diaper recycling. So check it out mm. on NewYorkTimes.com. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, I wasn't going to say this, but I actually I subscribed to the New York Times recently uh, to prep for this show. Oh, I'm so, so glad. Was, yeah. <laughs> Am I the one million subscriber? Do you I get, might be do one million something? and one for international subscribers. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was our pleasure to have you. Thanks to everybody for listening, and we will see you next week.